All right, guys, this is part three of our eating disorder podcast. Thank you so much for coming back. Or if you're just starting out with this one, thank you for coming. We really do appreciate your time here. This podcast will be more about conversations around eating disorders, uh, when to take control within an eating disorder, language, uh, compliments, all that kind of stuff. More around helping people who are struggling through this and how you can be a role model in that kind of situation. Uh, so we really hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being part of this. We really do appreciate it again i want to add a trigger warning before this because this topic can be triggering to some so if you feel like you can't really handle this right now or it's just not something that's great for you feel free to turn the podcast off listen to something else listen to something that makes you happy bird sounds water asmr whatever you feel like your mental health always comes first uh but yeah if you're going to listen to this podcast thank you so much we really do appreciate it and we hope you enjoy it So I know this is an area that uh, that's pretty hotly debated in in the eating disorder uh, community. When when do you take control? Um, it's a tricky one. I don't have a pat answer. I would say a problem is a problem when it's a problem, and if it's possible to get a doctor involved to support the physical aspect of it, as long as a person is physically safe enough, then. There's room to sort the rest out. So another question that the peer-to-peer mental health educators programs asking me is this one. And it's an interesting one. Thinking about the language that gets placed on food, i.e. good or bad food, how do you think we should be talking about food in a way that could be more supportive? Um, I mean, a, a short answer to that question is, Let's not buy into the value judgments around food. Even though science says that some food is better for us and some is not, it contributes to the conditions in which we use food to um, manage ourselves, punish ourselves, control ourselves, et cetera. So that's a, a short answer. We wanna offer room for autonomy and choice for people to be able to judge the to choose the food that they consume and to be able to sit with it without added judgment. But that being said, um, we're not made of porcelain. People are surrounded by unhelpful messages about food and body shape and size, et cetera. And so this isn't about eliminating those. We can't, and we can't protect people from them. It's not about hiding from them. Um, or rehabilitating and policing our language in a way that, well, to use the vernacular that cancels it, we can't cancel it. Um, so if not to do that, then what are we to do? Yes, um, be more aware of our attitudes around food and let's not contribute to a, a shitty mindset. Um, it's about behaving nonetheless, recognizing that food has many functions, only one of it, which is nutrition. So science might have something to say about ice cream or Doritos, et cetera, on its nutritional basis. But there's also a bunch of other things that food is for us, i.e. enjoyment, uh, social bonding, ritual, celebration, exploration, 
in a world of different foods. Of course, food is one way that we can travel, so to speak. Creativity, preparing food, fun, relief, that's valid. So you want to keep this in mind. It, it is our fuel to move out into life. But if we treat it only as fuel, we actually impoverish it. So what food shouldn't be is punishment, manipulation, and control, judgment. That's what it shouldn't be. Another question from the peer-to-peer -peer mental health educators program. How can we approach conversations of nutrition and physical health in a way that's more supportive of eating disorder recovery? Kind of a family member of the last question, which is also about how to support people. And again, it's a tricky one. One size fits one, not one size fits all. So there's certainly room for adaptation and innovation with respect to how we handle this kind of thing. It's tricky. Now, words are important to, to be sure. Um, an eating disorder mindset, which we might describe as one that's riven by perfectionist black or white notions can hijack any way of talking. So on some level, though, it's not about the words that we choose are not only about the words that we choose. It's about the spirit in which we talk about things like nutrition and physical health um, and other things too. But nutrition and health are like vehicles. Where do they get us? Focusing on one or the other as a value in itself, nutrition for itself, health for itself is kind of like keeping a Ferrari in the garage. Our lives are meant to be getting out on the road. And so I guess the spirit in which I would try to talk about things like nutrition and health or to steer those conversations is to the destinations that they get us. Um, the kind of life that we can have when we have those things. And less about the rules. My, my, my mom's doctor, um, my mom is elderly. And she gets to see my kids now and again. My mom's doctor has a rule, and the rule is it's Baba's rules when the kids are at her house, which means that Baba can give them lollipops whenever she wants. Um, and, that has, and that has to do with the, the, a healthy relationship between a Baba and some grandchildren. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're doing this for something. Let's focus our conversations about the kind of lives we want to live. Now, when I worked in addictions at a place called Base Camp west of Calgary, only a small percentage of the time was spent talking about addiction, for instance. The reason that people were there, most of our effort was spent in developing a vision for life and moving toward a life worth living. Most of it wasn't talking about living. It wasn't about the talk at all. It was about creating opportunities for living. So I know that when a problem is there, our, our in, you know, natural inclination is to talk about it all the time. <laughs> but over-talking it is, is part, could be part of the problem. As I said earlier, um, we don't want to create an identity. We don't want to trap someone in only one aspect of their experience. So conversation about nutrition and health, to me, are kind of conceived of as a subset of bigger, more important conversations like, and here's the point for me, what I work 
towards us, what a person needs, what they value, what they care for, what they stand for or stand against. And when we understand things about others and ourselves, we're in a better position to move somewhere meaningful in, in life. Another good question. How can we give compliments to others that would be more supportive of eating disorder recovery and even for the general public as well? Um, I hear in this question, uh, well, a tremendous amount of heart, um, wanting to give something to another person, something of worth. And uh, compliments are things that we give in that spirit. Um, I, as a therapist, I generally don't applaud people or give many compliments, I'll say, because to do that is to suppose that you're an audience to something, which is to say an observer of them. And there's an element of power in that, um, particularly when the things that we're applauding are in some sense attached to the value of the other person, or that is to say, their value is contingent on the thing that we're complimenting. I'm not saying that we intend to do that, but when, let's say I say, you look, you look beautiful today. Um, beauty is of value. And today makes it contingent. <laughs> so you're valuable today, puts pressure on tomorrow. It makes us wonder about yesterday. So even though it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's with, a, with the best intentions, a compliment can go sideways pretty quickly. Um, I don't want to uh, applaud someone for something that can be so ephemeral, that can change from a day-to-day -day basis. I want to notice and give value to things in a person that they value. I want to celebrate a person's humanity. And so I can appreciate a person's clothes for their quality. Like that's a, those, that's a lovely sweater. I don't want to say you look beautiful in that sweater. I don't want to associate that person's value to that quality. I'd much rather comment on the person's humanness, their strength, their intelligence, their integrity, their quality of presence. Yeah, I'd rather do that than to link their worth to something that can change, like clothing or muscle or makeup. Something like that, yeah. Another one from the peer-to-peer -peer mental health educators program. Do you think there are ways that we can role model or tune into our own connection to our bodies to support someone in recovery? Um, well, part of me says, yes. If we are tuned into our needs, if we're living in alignment with our values, if we're recruiting our strengths and finding a venue for them, and if we're oriented toward goals, that are coherent, then that's generally a positive person to be around. Now, here's the thing. Role modeling only works when someone cares. Um, I remember role modeling dishes uh, to my seven-year-old. And what I actually role modeled was dad does the dishes. She had no desire to wash the dishes, and so it didn't serve as role modeling. So modeling only works when someone cares about us, looks up to us, admires us, and feels, in some, feels some alignment with our trajectory as a human being. When they can resonate with that, then, they, then that resonance will bring them into line too. And so if they do, then I'd say if we become aware of how we talk to ourselves about our bodies, and if we can behave as though we can care about these vehicles and where they can get us, 
then we're good company to those who are in recovery because it gives them a healthier position to stand in. When we treat something as though it has worth, others treat it that way too. And maybe that's contagious. And not everything is about bodies and appearance too. <laughs> um, so we can support people by not talking about those things as well. Is there anything you've seen in common media that is a positive shift regarding discussing eating disorders and language around body image and food? Really good question. I know that media is a gigantic phenomenon in our lives, increasingly so. But here, I'll preface what I'm about to say by recognizing that I'm a middle-aged man, not exactly in tune with media as a whole. Well, at least only in tune with those things that interest me. My interests are those of a 53-year-old, white, middle-aged, middle-class man. They're not universal. And so my guess is that there is a lot of positive out there. Um, from my vantage, um, it looks like there is a lot more diversity represented in the media, and that's a good thing. Um, but there's more of everything out there as well, exponentially more. As much as it's a good thing to have better media out there, um, and, and there, there will be differences of opinion here, I'm sure. I, I think it's probably more important to consume less of it, or at least to be critical consumers, to tune in whether a given message leaves us a better feeling about ourselves or a worse one. Um, I wouldn't want to make one's well-being and worth contingent on more consumption of media. Um, other question. What do you think we need to challenge most about harmful messaging around eating disorders and eating disorder recovery? So I, I will diverge from many notable articulate voices on this. I put rabbit ears around eating disorders for many, many reasons I've said earlier, that the word itself doesn't quite capture the experience. It's not disordered at all. It's very ordered. It's responsive. It is problematic. But calling it eating disorder puts it inside of a person, locates it in them when it clearly is a response to the conditions of living. And I want to locate the problem so that we can respond to where the problem is. So maybe that is a little bit um, academic. I don't know. It's just an attitude that I have. Maybe another way of putting that is I want it to be understandable to people. Harmful messaging is about making an other of people who have eating disorders. I'm pretty sure that most of us could get an eating disorder under the right conditions. So this has nothing to do with failure of will or morality or character. And it's not located in us, it's, it, it's located in the environments in which we live. So what I would want to do to challenge the harm, most harmful messaging is to challenge the idea that it is in people and that it's about their deficiencies, that it's icky, that it's the other, that we would never get it. And so that means making it understandable, making it relatable, um, making room for conversation without shutting it down. I'd say challenging. So challenging the harmful messaging is, is a good thing. What that means to me is developing cultural literacy, particularly with respect to any messages about things that connect appearance and worth. 
Yeah, I guess another piece of it for me is that to call this a disorder introduces a bit of a logical problem. Like, for example, why is, why is that a depressed person acting that way? Well, it's because she's depressed as though the depression causes the depression. And that makes it really confusing. Um, Gabor Mate, uh, whom many will recognize uh, as a pretty prominent um, voice in addiction, says with respect to addiction, it's not, the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain. And so I would try to, try to do the same for eating disorders, not why the eating disorder, but why, what is necessitating and making sense of this response? Why is this person having to respond uh, in this way? How does it make sense? Remember, it has to make sense or it wouldn't be happening. And to me, it makes less sense as a disorder, as a medical problem, a genetic problem, et cetera, than it does as a response to living, a response that has purposes. And when we start there, it becomes possible to ask, what is the person responding to? What is this thing wanting? Um, what is eating disorder itself advocating for? What needs is it sufficing? And from there, it becomes possible to begin creating lives worth living, lives in which it becomes less and less necessary to respond to the tactics of disordered eating. All right, guys, that was part three of our Eating Disorder podcast. We are almost there. We can't wait to have you on our last podcast uh, series, which is that fourth one. We're going to be talking about some student questions. We had some students send some questions in and Kelly will be answering those. So we can't wait to have you there. Can't wait to hear your opinions. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And thank you so much, Kelly, for being a part of it. We really do appreciate it. And uh, I hope you guys have an amazing day.